You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Annalie Newitz is a author whose works include Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Her novels include Autonomous, The Future of Another Timeline, and her new novel is The Terraformers. Thank you for joining me, Annalie. Thanks for having me. You know, Annalie, I had a very peculiar experience as I started this novel. I read the first three or four paragraphs on the first page, and instantly was transported to the city of Orange in 1987 on Glassell Street, where there's a bookstore called Book Carnival, occasionally the site of signings by Dean Koontz. But that's where I picked up a first edition of a book called Hyperion by Dan Simmons. And it was a Big, huge influence on my life. Seconds later, after having that memory, I'm shot back to about 1970. I'm in the parking lot at Zodi's in Covina, California. My mother's going to take me to a house where I've seen on, or not, not online, but in one of the trading papers of the time that somebody has a box of science fiction books for sale. And when I go to that house, I remember picking out this big, thick book called Dune. Is the original, what I would now call the Joshua Tree Rocks uh, cover, where the big rock towering over looks just like a place in Joshua Tree. And that was that book really changed my reading life. And then I was back here in Aptos in the year 2023, quite far in the future that I could never imagine, looking at your book and realizing that this book is as big as those books were to me. And that's a really odd reading experience. I mean, aside from the fact that I just was immensely enjoying your novel from the get-go, that it transported me to the other times and places. And so... I'd like to just maybe talk about, you know, the effect of that reading can have when you have an experience reading in a certain place, another place. I remember reading um, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations in a elementary schoolyard when I was in college. You know, kids were out, and I remember have a vivid memory of sitting there reading that book and thinking, "This is wonderful." So, talk about the. Uh, creating these kind of intense reading experiences. Yeah, it's really funny. I think you and I grew up very near each other. <clears throat> um, I grew up in Orange County in Irvine. So I also um, have memories of some of those places <laughs> that you described. Um, and I also remember growing up um, there. I was there in the mid 70s and grew up you know, from there. And uh, the whole time I was growing up, uh, Irvine had been a farm. It had been an agricultural community. And our little neighborhood was surrounded by fields of orange groves, just like to a kid, it seemed infinite. Like there was nothing but orange groves other than our little town, our our little neighborhood. And um, huge eucalyptus trees had been grown between the fields, um, partly as a prevention against uh, erosion from the wind um, after uh, the Dust Bowl. That became a really popular way to prevent that kind of um, catastrophe, uh, planting these tall trees as kind of windbreaks. Um, And so I spent a lot of my childhood in these weird spaces in the suburbs where the suburbs were slowly encroaching on these areas that had been farmland for at least a century. Um, And of course, that farmland had been planted on what had once been indigenous land. So (laughs) many layers of um, of history of how the land had been treated. Um, And a lot of the ways that the land had been treated was not urban. I think we have this idea in our heads that like it's either nature or it's a city. And instead, in California, where we're from, 
Um, it had been, you know, millennia of indigenous tribes who were managing the land and were not necessarily building cities or building towns. Um, sometimes they were building cities too, but um, but they were certainly stewarding the land. And then when settlers came, they were farming the land in a totally different way than indigenous people had. And so I think that, you know, was always all around me, the sense of how the land was transforming in real time around me in ways that didn't kind of fit the storybook tale of how, you know, people come to a virgin land and they set up a shack and then they build a skyscraper on top of it, which is the kind of schoolhouse rock version of how, how um, settlements start. Um, and so I think a lot of that, that experience probably did work its way into the terraformers because like I said, the whole time I was growing up, by the time I left for college to come up to Northern California, um, all of the orange groves were gone and they were replaced by suburbs. And it used to piss me off that a lot of the suburbs, this is the eighties, were painted orange. It was this kind of peach color that was really popular in Southern California in the eighties. And I was just like, that, like you, you took away my beautiful orange groves and you built these terrible places. And um, not that people shouldn't have places to live, obviously, but there should also be, you know, places to um, not have humans living. <laughs> where you can breathe in the midst of trees that are making it possible to breathe. Mm -hmm. And they smell so good. Orange trees smell really good. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, my fifth grade teacher had an orange grove. So I, yeah, in Cabina, and I remember going to that orange grove because her son collected insects. And so I was really interested in all that kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that sensibility permeates this book and i think that the terraformers is a really interesting entry in what i would call topian fiction it's not a dystopia nor is it a utopia well what is it gonna be <laughs> it's topian fiction and you know, it, so it's an interesting vision because things are never all good or all bad they get pretty close to both <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but there, there's a constant movement. So talk about creating a, a realistic vision uh, of that allows for, you know, both uh, extremes to exist and cross over one another. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of my jam. Like all of my novels, um, this is my third novel, have been topian. They've had elements of, of hope and elements of utter dismay and violence and horrific behavior um, on the part of humans toward other humans usually. Um, uh, and it's funny because my first novel, Autonomous, a lot of people described it as dystopian, um, even though it actually has kind of a happy ending and like some of the characters find love. And um, I think it's just because that novel was very, cyberpunk flavored and people just automatically think oh, cyberpunk is dystopian and with terraformers i've had the opposite because it's this novel set on a planet that for most of the book is almost completely unsettled by homo sapiens it's mostly these natural or actually they're fake ecosystems but they are full of plants and animals that are just living there and doing their thing um, people have been saying like, oh, it's such a cozy book. It's so utopian. And um, and that's good. I mean, I'm, I want people to feel the joy in the book because there is a lot of joy and, and certainly a lot of love of the natural world and natural ecosystems um, or unnatural ecosystems that look like natural <laughs> ecosystems, which is what you get when you terraform. Um, so I think that the magical formula is that um, I, as I'm working on plot and as I'm thinking about character, I try to balance out, you know, characters um, experiencing joy and triumph with realistic setbacks. Um, and I mean, you can't really have a triumphant moment in a book without setbacks anyway. Um, and I don't take any joy in it. Like I know some writers um, who I respect very much who will say like, and then I killed the character, ha ha ha. You know? And they really like, they enjoy kind of like punching the reader in the face a little bit. 
Um, and, and I totally get that, but that is not me. I definitely, when I have, and there are very horrifying moments in this book. Um, there's a couple, you know, there's a war, there's, um, some really, uh, horrible attacks on innocent people from rapacious corporations and police. And there's one scene, which I'm not going to spoil where one of these horrible attacks takes place and um, it's basically a real estate corporation trying to reclaim its property in the most violent way possible because they don't care. They don't care about the people who live in that space. And I wrote the scene and as I wrote it, I was actually crying, which is kind of sad. I actually can make myself cry. I, I do. There's a couple scenes in the book where I, where I cried while I was writing them. <laughs> um, so uh so i don't feel good about doing that stuff but i do feel like it's important to remind readers that um even if you have uh, a moment where community comes together and defeats the forces of evil or the forces of real estate development in this case um it's not over you know there's always going to be the shoe the other shoe will always drop and it's like you're dealing with like a centipede so they're wearing like a hundred shoes um and and you always have to be aware that um moments that that peace and um you know happiness are are kind of brief moments and then that's kind of you have to always be ready uh, for the next, yeah, like I said, you have to be ready for another setback. And so what I think draws me to characters is when they're able to get through those setbacks and survive <clears throat> and find a way to stay hopeful and to stay connected to their friends and family, even when um, they're constantly threatened. Um, and I think that's very real to my experience, very true to my experience is very true to life is that um, you know, the people who survive uh, have often seen some shit and, um, you know, we stick together partly to shelter each other from the stuff we've endured and what we know is going to come next. You know, this book deals in deep time. It starts, what, 59,000 years <laughs> yes. in the future? So, so that's a long time now. And there are three parts to the book, and each part is, what, 700 years apart or something? Yeah, it's like about a 1,600-year span that happens in the book, which was so, pretty so, fun. <laughs> <laughs> that provides a pretty interesting perspective. So talk about using that depth of time that you know is, frankly, inconceivable to most of us because we live in a world where thing, you know, it gets up. Yeah, that apple cart gets turned over about every 24 hours. <laughs> yes, and, you know, we're we're stuck in these, um, you know, we're stuck in linear time. We only get a finite amount of it. Um, and so, I mean, I think one of the problems, I mean, this is a book really about shaping the environment and how do you steward an entire, how do you, um, how do you guide an entire planet through phases of um, evolutionary and geological development. And then once you have a stable set of ecosystems on the planet, how do you maintain them? Like, how do you prevent them from going through what our ecosystems are going through on Earth right now, where we just were like, oh, let's plunder and, you know, just, you know, fuck around and find out, like, whatever. Um, and so a lot of these characters, because they're preparing the planet for people who want to buy pristine real estate or what they think of as pristine real estate are really dealing with like, okay, there's a, a disaster because there's too many predators over here. So how do we you know, prevent those predators from taking over and that kind of thing? And so I wanted to sort of give people a feeling of the drama of environmental change. And that takes place over a really long period of time. So um, I'm certainly not the first person to do this. Obviously, Kim Stanley Robinson in his Mars trilogy also figured out that you really can't terraform a planet without giving characters like incredibly long lifespans <laughs> because otherwise, you know, you lose track of characters. It would be like, and now 10 generations later. Um, and But that is still what I had to do. I really wanted readers to feel 
the truth of the fact that any environmental project, any environmental movement will be multi-generational. And the generation that reaps the rewards or reaps the, um, the horror of what um, has come before may not even know the generation that started it. And so we start with a generation in the book, um, a generation of terraformers who are just finally finishing up building the ecosystems. And then we end with a generation that is coping with gentrification in the cities and in the eco resorts on the planet and how that's causing displacement. So that's, again, I mean, to go back to California, which we were talking about earlier, I feel like those are in some ways the generations that I know of from California history, where we've had a history of people who were already living here for thousands and thousands of years uh, getting displaced by settlers who come in and have their own ideas about how they want to, and I, I shouldn't say getting displaced, getting killed, and then also getting displaced uh, by settlers who completely terraform the entire state and turn it into farms and cities. Um, and then we have this problem of new waves of um, people coming into California and trying to remake it again and coming into these already existing settler communities and indigenous communities that are all now side by side. I guess it's really fun to be able to see it from start to finish, you know, like it's so annoying to me when I think about like, well, what's going to happen to the future of California? Like, what are we going to do in like 500 years? It's like, well, I'll never know. <laughs> but in fiction, I can know. And I think it's really important for us right now, especially um, to be thinking in these long term ways, because it is so important we're at this turning point with our ecosystems on the planet where we're really about to change them dramatically in a way that will make it very toxic for us to live here, toxic for most of the life forms that we know and love to live here, uh, both on land and in the ocean. And so we need to have stories that remind us that life will be here in 1600 years. It's just it's going to be coping with all the poop that we leave behind. And so if we can start thinking in those terms and thinking of our stories as being our lives as being part of this generational process, I think it can help us be more, um, more sympathetic to the people of the future and, and really think about treating them the way we would want to be treated by our ancestors um, and not have not leave behind a world that's going to be so much more difficult and so have so many fewer resources um, than the one we have now. So, so it's really my secret project to get people thinking in the long term about the environment, um, but also just a wish fulfillment for me to get to, like, to see the outcome of, of all these projects that I start in the book. You know, I think when you talk about uh, the plot and the story being set in the long term, you all that had a really distinct and happy effect on the way the book is written because you have here in 336 pages more story than, than you know, all I don't know how many books there are in the Doom Saga now. <laughs> But that's a lot. That that's a couple of shelves of books. Um, yeah, more story than in the Hyperion Quartet, the Hyperion Cantos, which is probably about sixteen hundred pages. You cover more, but it doesn't feel to me as if you, when writing it, you are forced to drop stuff out. It feels like this quick flow pulling out the highlights, telling them really, you know, down in dirty, detailed stories across three, you know, what, uh, 1,600 years um, in 300 pages feels entirely natural. Did you have to, uh, you know, uh, rejigger your writing process to turn this out? Because it is amazing. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, well, I mean, so one way I did it was... Um, each section of the book really focuses in on one or two characters. And so it's it may take a very long period of time, like we're, we're covering 1600 years, but we're kind of zooming in really tightly to just a small number of characters. So 
Um, and the characters are not just homo sapiens. There's um, a lot of different people. There's moose who are sentient talking moose. There's a cat. There's a sentient train who's part of the public transit system. Um, there's these um, kind of off-brand homo sapiens called homo alteris who are basically kind of homo sapiens but with some bells and whistles um some of whom are part neanderthal because i just love neanderthals and um so i i did that and then i will confess that initially i had this idea in my head that each section of the book would be the same length and so it would be like this perfectly symmetrical story um and then that isn't how it turned out like it turned out that the first section was actually much longer and each section gets slightly shorter as we go kind of into the future of the story um and i think if i had had like two more years to write this book maybe those that final section um would have been longer i'm not sure like i i think sometimes writing is like a um compromise between like pragmatism and um and art <laughs> so um so there might have been more adventures in there um i definitely want to uh, at some point i want to write a short story about um the terraformers who came before the book because there's a whole generation of terraformers that i had originally wanted to write about who are just arriving at the planet and the planet just is like a barren rock and they have to build the atmosphere from scratch and they have to um, build a continent and figure out where the ocean is going to go and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, what happened to those guys? I don't know. They were doing something. Um, and so uh, I'd really like to maybe write about them. Um, we kind of, we see, we meet some characters who are the descendants of those people and they become very major characters in the book, but we never see what it was like when you first arrive at a planet and there's nothing. <laughs> there's just do it yourself, <laughs> get some gas, stick it on a ball. <laughs> It seems to me like you could write a, a number of books like this and cover, you know, what, half a million years in a number of pages most people use for 200. <laughs> <laughs> well, I write short. <laughs> but it, it's, as you say, it's a, each part segment is very much in-depth or mm -hmm. completely there. Now, one of the really great things about this book is it's set in a very convincing far distant future everything seems really reasonable you know all the the innovations you create are really well laid out thought out they nothing surprised there's no hand waving there's no well bob <laughs> uh expositions it all seems you know the reader is able to put it all together as a logical a whole um but when you're um reading it I, I think one of the things that you know that you create this whole wonderful future but at the same time this is a book that is very much about the present <laughs> and i think that you do this great way of ex you know as you grow the planet um across these three sections of the book each section is like an externalization of all your wonderful, imaginative, and generally positive thoughts about wrapped around all the terrible problems <laughs> that <laughs> we seem to be have had recently and seem to be headed for at you know with pedal to the metal as fast as we can. And so I'd like you to talk about that because. It, you, it seems like you really did a fantastic job of sublimating your what must have been an inclination to directly address these problems. And you address them by creating this very logical, pragmatic, and uh, through-line future. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say one thing about the logical future which is there's there is one thing that's a bit hand wavy which is that a number of the characters can fly um and um and i did come up with what i consider to be a hand wavy explanation for why that is there's this thing called gravity mesh and apparently you can implant it under people's skins and then that allows them to fly i 
how would that work? Where would all the energy go? Like, why are these people not exploding? I don't know. <laughs> like, it's it's 60,000 years in the future. So everybody, you know, there's a flying moose. You know, why is that? Because I really would love to ride a flying moose. So I threw that in. Um, and I think that's kind of, of a piece with what you're saying about how there's a lot of like hope and joy in the book alongside a lot of my disappointment in general with human institutions. Um, because I, I let myself do some things that I just, that just make me happy, like people being able to network with the environment and feel what the pH of the soil is through sensors in their hands. Like that scene at the beginning is just astonishing. He just says, <laughs> you, you read the, when, when I read that, I think that makes such sense. It's so perfect. How could nobody have that? Why can't we do that right now? I think so to be fair like I think people have written about things like that I mean I'm certainly not I mean I might be the only person to describe it in in such a silly way but I think um where the censors are kind of you know in a sense the the censors make little jokes about stuff in in the environment and they they talk about like oh there's a little extra poop here um what, what does that mean um means there's a person who's been camping out so but I I think interestingly you see that kind of idea that that we could sense the environment, sense the animals and plants around us, um, that comes from fantasy. Um, you see it a lot in fantasy stories. You also see it in things like the movie Avatar, which has this kind of fantastical, uh, you know, say what you will about those films, they're kind of problematic. But the thing I do love about them is this idea that the moon is alive. We don't know how or why, maybe it's technology, maybe it's magic, maybe it's biology. But there's characters who can connect to the the moon itself and and communicate with all different life forms on it, and um, and so I think the reason why we have that fantasy in fantasy and in science fiction is because to go back to what we were saying about climate and environment, it's a way of trying to reimagine our relationship with our ecosystems. And what I was asking myself is what how would we need to modify ourselves in order to never forget that we're surrounded by living things that are affected by what we do like instead of um cutting down a tree and being like well cut down a tree that we would feel what that does to the environment not like we'd feel the pain of the tree but we'd be like oh with one less tree this environment might have more erosion or there might be fewer birds that could you know build nests in it or uh, woodpeckers would be sad or whatever, you know, we would we would feel what that had done. Um, and so my character Destry, who has these sensors and also her protege Misha, um, they both have these sensors that allow them to literally stick their hands in the soil and connect to these sensor networks on the planet and and learn those kinds of things about the environment like, oh, there's too many rabbits here or um, why are there so many alligators in this lake? That's too many alligators. Um, Destry tells a story about like having this really horrible time for years trying to prevent crocodiles from taking over this one ecosystem. Um, and so there's there's that aspect of it, of, of having a fantasy about how we could reimagine this this relationship. But then there's there's just a part of me that really doesn't believe that humans are ever going to perfectly solve all our problems and that, you know, we'll solve one problem and we'll get a new we'll just create a new problem. And so that's why I imagine this future, this distant future, still having real estate development companies that are up to their usual tricks, you know, that are um, abusing the environment, you know, converting, you know, things that should be free into property, um, you know, engaging in false advertising, um, you know, doing all kinds of um, nefarious things that we find out about in the book that are not things that real estate agencies could do, real estate development companies could do now, but they would if they could, I'm sure. Um, so I, I think um, that's, you know, part of, part of being a science fiction writer is acknowledging that you're living in the present and that the only thing you can really do is extrapolate from what you've seen around you um where you live when you live um and to try to tell a story about it that will get people to 
rethink that and to you know change their opinion about the present and maybe in that way change our pathway out of the present you know that's all you can really do like you can't make a future happen but you can make people um well not make people you can invite people to think about how to get to a better place um and what would be the first little baby step in that direction um and that's why I wanted this book to have characters that are by and large, even though they're kind of messy and flawed, they're basically nice, they're lovable. Some of them are like so lovable, it's ridiculous. Like the moose character, Whistle. I I mean, he's just a nice guy. <laughs> like he never really does anything. He's, he's really oppressed. He's been really um, mistreated by the real estate company that built him. Um, but like, he, his main problem is like he falls in love with a moose. He falls in love with another moose who's kind of haughty um, and they they like have this tumultuous romance. And it's like it's very people have said that this book is cozy. And I think that's why, because there's like these little cozy moments of like people just having relationship drama, even though their world is at war and like their lives are at stake, like they're still having fun. There's they go to a strip club like you know, they just, I guess it's more of a burlesque club, but they're stripping. Um, and so I just wanted to reflect that, that like, even in the midst of precarity, like people still do go out to strip clubs and have fun, you know, and like it, you can still have a party and, and that's the, the party sustains you through the next horrible thing. You know, you were talking about the characters and that you're, they are so wonderful. It's so great one of the appeals of this book is no matter what character you're with at that time, you just think, wow, this character is great. I could just read books and books and books about these, <laughs> these people. And that word people person is really important to you in this book because you have a really interesting idea. You put forth a very interesting idea of personhood that is, has it direct parallels to, you know, all the, trauma and or much of the trauma and strife are inflicting upon ourselves now but i think it's such a, a fascinating way to think about what people are and i love the 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 moose the cats the naked mole rats <laughs> the worms uh, the you know, worms like, i was like we gotta have some worms in here because they're doing something <laughs> so so talk uh, this idea of what a person is um, is very expansive. So talk, but it's also really pretty logical and pragmatic. Talk about uh, creating this because this is one of the poles around which the the book uh, turns. Yeah. So in this future, um, there are lots of people who are not human. Um, as far as I know, there's no aliens. Um, these are all um, life forms that originate on Earth, but have been radically transformed through uh, genetic engineering and cybernetic implants and all that kind of stuff. They're all kind of cyborgs. They're all kind of like um, rocket raccoon type uh, creatures, right? Um, and uh, there's a, a deep history behind that in the book that we hear about at different points. Um, and I think by the end, we have a pretty good sense of why it is that this has happened. Um, but basically there's been, again, in deep history, like tens of thousands of years before the book takes place, we know that there's been a, a horrific environmental catastrophe on earth and that the, the population has fallen, uh, sea level rise and, and climate change have really decimated the continents. And there's a, a number of survivors, humans and robots, and as they rebuild the earth, uh, or as they rebuild the ecosystems on earth, they develop really new kinds of belief systems that, again, are by the time we encounter them in this book, they're very ancient belief systems. So it would be like, you know, a religion that was started 50,000 years ago or something like that. So it's, they barely know where it came from, these ideas, but the ideas center on this notion of the great bargain. And the great bargain is the agreement between um, any species that humanity wants to um, 
to work with uh, on the land. And so they start by um, making this bargain with farm animals like cows and um, other kinds of, of animals that um, are part of agriculture. And they modify these uh, non-human animals to be people. They give them um, different uh, ways of speaking. A lot of these animals have um, a device implanted in their brains that allows them to text so they can send a text from their brain to your brain. So they're always, so they, like the cow, there's actually a cow character in the book who's like this awesome cyborg flying cow. And so she, um, she actually has speakers embedded in her face so she can um, make herself understood audibly. But most of the the animals just look like regular animals. You know, they like whistle the moose looks like a moose, but he can um, text with his mind to to his human friends, to his other, uh, to his robot friends. He has a lot of robot friends. And I, I wanted to kind of have this foundation for my civilization that was both very scientific because of course they entered into this great bargain by in some sense recreating the animal world so that humans and non-human animals can hang out and chat and those those non-human animals become people and then can also weigh in on decisions that people are making right so as humans are rebuilding the ecosystems they can kind of check in with the animals that live in the ecosystems be like well what do you think we should do with this river um so it has this kind of utopian element to it uh, but it is also very practical um and the humans call the great bargain um, an aspect of the farm revolutions it's it's kind of like the future green revolution where um, ecosystems themselves become part of, um, become what we now call stakeholders <laughs> um, and get to kind of help guide their own um, fate. And also a little like uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm <laughs> kind of comes yeah. to life. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's funny, like definitely that was in the back of my mind. I think my biggest influence with thinking about this stuff or some of my influences were Beatrix Potter. I read a lot of Beatrix Potter as a kid. And, um, you know, a lot of her animal people are very rebellious. And, um, you know, usually by the end, they have to like learn to be domesticated and be nice. But like, I always think about the story of Hunka Munka, who's this mouse who's just really pissed off that like, she doesn't have all of the trappings of civilization that that the humans put in their dollhouse like the humans build a dollhouse with like mouse sized like everything and the and hunka monk is like really mad like well why do these like dolls get to have like really nice sheets and like dishes and like mice don't get to have that stuff and i'm just like yeah hunka monka like totally um, and so I was thinking of that. I was thinking a lot about Lassie's Rescue Rangers, where like Lassie is a character, right? Like Lassie talk, I mean, kind of talks and like is part of the team. Um, and, and the characters in this novel are part of a group called the Environmental Rescue Team, who are like first responders and environmental scientists and engineers and construction workers. And they're the ones who build ecosystems and they're the ones who kind of originally came up with the great bargain. And so it's a little bit Lassie. It's a little bit animal farm. Um, there's a little bit of um, Tuca and Birdie in there too, <laughs> which I was watching as I was writing. Um, it's a great uh, cartoon um, that an adult cartoon that's about human, about people who are animals and the main characters are birds. Uh, but there's also plants, there are characters, and they live in a city that's being gentrified by moss. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, that's the vibe I'm going for. Um, so, yeah, I think. Um, you also nailed uh, many a parent's dream as a, a parent many years ago. I ended up watching a lot of TV with my kids, and it was generally pretty good. I enjoyed it. You know, this Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, and Thomas the Tank Engine. You <laughs> brought Thomas the Tank Engine to life, gave him a job. He's a happy guy. Oh, my God. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> I So one of the main characters in the book, I mean, there's many, many, many characters who are robots. So we know that that robots can be people. And of course, vehicles can be robots. So there is a major character who's a train uh, who's part of the 
Saski public transit system. Saski is the name of the planet. I think the reason I really wanted to have a train character, a flying train character, of course, um, was first of all, I love public transit um, and, and I ride transit all the time. So I think a lot about transit almost as a creature in my life. Like it, it feels like a living thing. Um, and I also wanted to extend this idea of the great bargain um, to infrastructure because part of the great bargain is that you know humans don't get to make all the decisions about their environment that the environment also all of the life forms in the environment come to the table and also talk back and are like no don't do this to our stuff and so i really wanted one of the things the characters struggle with is like how to build a transit system that will serve the whole planet and um it's not really spoilers to say that they come up with this idea that like, well, we can't really do it, but if we let the transit be sentient, the transit could come and make decisions and then we could bargain with the transit and the transit could, um, you know, the transit's going to know best how to function. And so they'll kind of have responsibility for, um, for serving all of the different habitations that um, exist on this planet. And so that's why they, they make this, it, eventually these two characters kind of have a baby who's a train um and um and and raise the train and the train thinks of them as parents and it's pretty cute um but also pretty scary because the train has to deal with a lot of pushback from this real estate company that really doesn't want public transit because they want to keep people you know this one real estate company buys up a bunch of cities and wants to keep people inside the cities and if you have public transit that'll take you anywhere then you can't make as much money on your cities because people could just like hop on a train and go to a city that isn't owned by Emerald Corporation. Uh, so Emerald Corporation is pissed. They're like, what? I No, they, they can only ride on our proprietary trains inside our cities and that's where they should stay and buy more games and buy more food and buy more stuff. Um, so the public transit is kind of a weirdly subversive force. And, um, and of course, you know the trains have their own culture and um, they love video games and they have their own thoughts and needs that are very different from what the other people have um and of course they have romance turns out trains and cats can really hook up and get along so <laughs> that was fun you know too part of the uh appeal of this book is that you have all these really nice people who are essentially great heroes, but you do have some not so nice people because in any bell curve, there's some people who are going to be at the top of the curve and middle of the curve. They're the nice guys. But then uh, there's always the bottom of the curve. And you have two <laughs> wonderful characters, even though they're awful people, Ronnie and Celindra. <laughs> I mean... Even though you, you dislike them and understand that they represent, you know, a certain kind of character that we might see on TV or encounter, unfortunately, in our own lives, uh, they that kind of person still exists in in the, the distant future. And that says something about, you know, the the permanence of human types who there there will always be some of those you know mm -hmm. yeah i hadn't thought of it that way cuz i i actually try i try to suggest that maybe they're not a type of person but more um i, I mean i think your reading is totally valid i'm just saying that as a writer i was thinking that what's happened is that in this future there are pockets of hyper capitalism you know there's we can imagine that i mean this is a, a vast interstellar society so you could imagine that there's planets that are um you know uh democratic socialist or that are anarchist feminist and there's going to be a bunch of different kinds of of cultures and civilizations but there is real estate development and um and it is functioning within hyper capitalism and so these two characters who are both executives at real estate development companies um, are a reflection of the kind of person who rises to the top in a capitalist organization. Um, and so, 
you know, they wouldn't have to be powerful people, right? Like if they grew up in a socialist environment, maybe they would be doing something else. Um, or maybe they would leave and go join a company um, so that they could rape the land. Um, but uh, I wanted, you know, it's funny because I, I think a lot of writers would have wanted those two villains to be much more prominent in the story. We do meet them and deal with them a lot, and they are in some ways kind of driving the action. They're, they're the main antagonists. Um, and we we get only brief glimpses of their thoughts and how they live and like we kind of visit them briefly but um i i am just not that interested in why villain like i'm interested in how villains do what they do but not why and so we see throughout the book there's a lot of attention i pay a lot of attention to the outcome of decisions that ronnie and Solyndra have made I pay a lot of attention to how my main characters are pushing back against them and figuring out their tactics and figuring out tactics they can use to prevent all of the land from being bought up by crappy companies. Um, but I just, I don't really have, like, I feel like, why would I care why Cylinder does what she does? Like, why is she so evil? Like, she isn't even really evil. She's just greedy and greedy and sloppy, you know, she just doesn't, she doesn't dot her I's and cross her T's very well. Um, like many greedy real estate developers that one might think of uh, in recent US history. Um, and I'm like, what, I guess I, I'm always like, what's the good of knowing what's going through, like how, what a villain is telling themselves? Cause often writers will say like, oh, but villains always tell themselves that what they're doing is right. And I'm like, so, okay, what? How does that help us fight the villain, knowing that they think what they're doing is okay? Or what if they don't think what they're doing is okay? Don't care. Like, they're just jerks. Like, I want to fight them. I want to know what tools they have at their disposal, like what their strategy is so that I can crush them or get them off screen. But like, I just, I don't like, yeah, I don't crave like knowing why Ronnie is sad <laughs> or like, yeah. So I feel like if you're looking for like a deep psychological portrait of, of evil, um, that's not going to happen in this book. Instead, it's more of a psychological portrait of, of how communities come together and fight against greedy capitalists. You know, there are three stories in this book. And one of the things that, that makes this book so much fun to read is your plotting, a sense of plotting, intention, and creating, you know, drive and momentum is really, really incredible. It's smart. You know when to, you know, you move fast. But it doesn't feel like you're running through the plot. It feels like that each of the plots of these sections is really carefully constructed to suck us in, get us involved. We love the characters. We want them to succeed. And then gets out and says the next section. And there's a nice, you know, the connective tissue of, of you know, descendants and, and such. But talk about, you know, creating these three plots and also, you know, integrating them into one book so that reads like one book. This does not read like a trilogy compressed into one book. Because in that case, it would be 2,000 pages long. <laughs> it and, could be novellas. <laughs> a lot of people say it's just, it's three novellas put together. And I, I won't argue with that. I was definitely thinking of it kind of that way. I, I, I get that. But I think that the way, it, it's almost in a sense, a new form of literature, in, especially with regards to the way you use deep time to accommodate all that story. Uh, mm -hmm. So talk about the, deep time and plotting and tension and also you know detail each part is really really detailed and we're right there with with <laughs> moose the cat on, on scrub jay the train and and just thinking wow this is terrible I, you know this is yeah these kids these are sweet characters and, and why do they have to deal with all this gentrification <laughs> Yeah. How, why is it that a cat journalist can't afford to live in the city whose paper he writes for, they write for? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, um, I, I'm an outliner. 
um, as a writer. Um, I know lots of folks who write amazing stuff where they don't have any outline and they don't know where they're going. Um, but I, I am a journalist and I've spent, you know, many, many years being a journalist before I started writing fiction. And so I have that um, nonfiction approach, which is, you know, I, I map out what I'm going to say. I interview experts um, about science. And um, in, in the case of this book, I talk to a lot of people about different kinds of societies as well um, and, and how public transit works. Um, and I, so I do that. Like, I think about like, where do I want those tension points to be? And I plan them out. And I don't mean that it's planned down to the letter. Like there's lots of open space in my outlines, but I always know that there's certain moments that are going to happen. So there's certain, there's points in this book where there's these obviously like climactic, intense action scenes um, or, or wars or clashes. And those are things that I knew were going to happen starting right away. I also, always knew there would be a cat and a train who fall in love. In fact, one of the very first images I had in my mind for the book was this train, this flying train who's in love with a cat and the cat is likes to sleep in the sun. And so the train figures out a way to angle their body so that the sunlight is always falling on the cat, no matter where they're driving. Um, and I just, I loved that image. And um, so, yeah, I think like in terms of the structure, like these three generations, I was thinking a lot about um, Octavia Butler's trilogy, Lilith's Brood, which is also three generations. It's kind of a, it's an eco-futurist novel that's kind of about, it's, it's sort of an inverted terraforming situation where there's a planet-sized spaceship that is generating its own natural environment inside of its body. And, um, we see over the generations how humans are assimilated into this alien culture. And um, I don't think it takes place over thousands of years, but it, it's certainly a huge transformation that takes place. And the earth itself is consumed and turned into this another one of these spaceships. And so I think, I mean, the thing about Octavia Butler, I mean, she's obviously the master and she wrote short books that were full of so much stuff. And so, that's definitely a, a big inspiration for me in terms of how to think about plotting and action and um, and transformation in the civilization at, as well as the characters. So, um, so I'm sure that, um, you know, like I said, I know that was running through my mind as I was putting this together. The new novel by Annalie Newitz is The Terraformers. Thank you for joining me, Annalie. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for all those great questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.